Uh, turn with me, first of all, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to begin at verse 16. First Peter chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Hear now God's most holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his most holy word. So before we get to the sermon, um, and, and let me tell you ahead of time that, that the focus of this sermon is the first part of verse 18 in this passage. But I thought I would read, I think I read this the last time, but it's been a while, just to give you a, a couple of sentences uh, about John Flavel, who is the author of this sermon. If any of you have that work, that method of grace uh, by John Flavel, a collection of, of, of many sermons, you, you may have read this before, uh, but I hope that it will be a blessing to you uh, as well today. So John Flavel, he was an English Puritan Presbyterian minister. He was born somewhere around 1627 to Reverend Richard Flavel at Bromsgrove, Worcestershire. He studied at University College in Oxford, and in 1650, he entered the ministry and enjoyed a sunny decade before the restoration of Charles II in 1660. He labored in the ministry and carried on his life's work in the county of Devon, and he suffered along with many others great persecutions after that restoration took place. And while visiting Exeter in order to preach, he died suddenly of a massive stroke on June 26, 1691. So that, just a brief overview of his, of, of his birth and death and, and a little bit about his ministry. <clears throat> so the title of this sermon is, The Saints Coming Home to God by Reconciliation and Glorification Opened and Applied. Now I know that that title sounds a little bit maybe technical or something like that. But let me assure you, there are many things, I think, in this sermon that will really warm your heart. And, and, it, and, and if, if those of you that have read Flavel, you know that, that he does. He, he does go, go right to your heart. And, and he is, a, he is a very, very apt minister of the gospel and, and, and a good preacher. And, has, and, and thank God that we have so many of his sermons preserved for us. So first let's return to that portion that will be the text of, of the sermon here. For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The scope of the, of the apostle in this place is to prepare and fortify Christians for a day of suffering in order to their cheerful sustaining whereof he prescribeth two excellent rules of mighty use for all suffering Christians. So let me tell you right now, this first part is kind of an, an overview or, or a summary of this passage. It's not the main part of the sermon. We'll get to that very quickly. 
but, but on to this outline first. To get a good conscience within them in verses 16 and 17, which is part of the reason why I read back starting at, at verse 16 of 1 Peter 3. And secondly, to set the example of Christ's sufferings before them in verse 18. For Christ hath once suffered for sinners. The sufferings of Christ for us is the great motive engaging Christians to suffer cheerfully for Him. In the words before us, we have, first, the sufficiency and fullness of Christ's sufferings intimated in that particle, that particle once, that part of speech, where it says once. Christ needs to suffer no more, having finished and completed that work at once. Secondly, the meritorious cause of the sufferings of Christ and that is sin. Christ once suffered for sins. Not his own sins, but ours. As it follows in the next clause, which is the third thing here observable, namely, the admirable grace and unexampled love of Christ to us sinners. The just for the unjust. In which words the substitution of Christ in the room and place of sinners is plainly expressed. Christ died not only for our good, but also in our stead. And fourthly, here is also the final cause or design and scope of the sufferings of Christ, which was to bring us to God. And fifthly, here is also the issue of the sufferings of Christ, which was the death of Christ in the flesh and the quickening of Christ, after the death, after death by the Spirit. So many excellent observations are lodged in the bosom of this scripture, all which I must pass over in silence at this time and confine my discourse to the final cause of the sufferings of Christ, namely, that he might bring us to God, where the observation will be plainly and briefly this. Doctrine. That the end of Christ's cursed death and bitter sufferings was to bring all those for whom he died unto God. In the explication and preparation of this point for use, two things must be spoken unto. Namely, and these are the two main points of the sermon. Number one, what Christ bringing us to God imports. Now children imports, that mean, that, that's what it... What is encompassing it? What does it, what does it mean? What, what does it tell us? So, and number two, what influence the death of Christ hath upon this design of bringing us to God? So taking up that, that first point, what Christ bringing us to God imports. Think of why is it important when you hear that word imports? Why is it important? So what Christ bringing us to God imports, and certainly there may be many great and excellent things contained in this expression, more generally it notes our state of reconciliation and our state of glorification. By reconciliation, we are brought nigh to God. Ephesians 2.13, ye are made nigh, that is reconciled, by the blood of Christ. 
Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, we are said to come to God, the judge of all. By reconciliation, we are brought nigh unto God now. By glorification, we shall be brought home to God hereafter. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we shall ever be, we shall be ever with the Lord. But more particularly, this phrase, that he might bring us to God imports. Now, these are several points that we have. I think it's five points underneath this first major point. So the first of those that is speaking about what Christ bringing us to God imports is that the chief happiness of man consisteth in the enjoyment of God, that the creature hath this necessary dependence upon God for happiness as the stream hath upon the fountain, or the image in the glass upon the face of him that looks into it. Now, children, did you notice that it said it consisteth in the enjoyment of God? Now, what does that make you think of? How about catechism question number one? What is the chief end of man? For as the sum of the creature's misery lies in this, depart from me, separation from God being the principal part of damnation, so, on the contrary, the chief happiness of the creature consisteth in the enjoyment and blessed vision of God. 1 John 3, 2 and Psalm 17, 15, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And secondly, it implies man's revolt and apostasy from God. Ephesians 2, 12, but now in Christ Jesus... Ye who were sometime afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Those whom Christ bringeth unto God were before afar off from him, both in state and condition and in temper and disposition. We were lost creatures and had no desire to return to God. The prodigal was said to go into a far country in Luke 15 verse 30. Thirdly, Christ bringing us to God implies our inability to return to God of ourselves. We must be brought back by Christ or perish forever in a state of separation from God. The lost sheep is made the emblem of the lost sinner. In Luke 15, 5, the sheep returns not to the fold of itself, but the shepherd seeks it and finds it and carries it back upon his shoulders. We all remember that story of the lost sheep, right? The lost sheep just doesn't wander back to the fold. He's carried by the shepherd. And the apostle plainly tells us, Romans 5, 6, that when we were without strength, that is, any ability to recover, help, or save ourselves, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And fourthly, Christ bringing us to God evidently implies this, that God's unsatisfied justice was once the great bar betwixt him and man. Man can have no access to God but by Christ. Christ brings us to God by no other way but the way of satisfaction by his blood. He hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Better 10,000 worlds should perish forever than that God should lose the honor of his justice. 
this great obex or bar to our enjoyment of God is effectually removed by the death of Christ, whereby God's justice is not only fully satisfied, but highly honored and glorified. Romans 3, 24. And so the way by which we are brought to God is again opened to the wonder and joy of all believers by the blood and sufferings of Christ. So fifthly and lastly, and don't think that this point is about to be over, because under this last one, under the first section, it's going to be expanded quite a bit. So fifthly and lastly, it shows us the peculiar happiness and privilege of believers above all people in the world. These only are they which shall be brought to God by Jesus Christ in a reconciled state. Others, indeed, shall be brought to God as a judge to be condemned by him. Believers only are brought to God in the mediator's hand as a, recon- as a reconciled father to be made blessed forever in the enjoyment of him. Every believer is brought singly to God at his death. Luke 16, 22. And all believers shall be jointly and solemnly presented to God in the great day. Colossians 1, 22. Jude, verse 24. They shall be all presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now the privilege of believers in that day will lie in diverse things. And here's where we're going to drill down some more into these privileges of believers. And now remember, we're still under this first point about what Christ bringing us to God imports. So first, regarding the privileges of believers, that they shall be all brought to God together. This will be the general assembly mentioned in Hebrews 12, 22. I know that you catechism students, if you're doing your memory verses, that's one of them, if I remember correctly. There shall be a collection of all believers in all ages of the world into one blessed assembly. They shall come from the east and west and north and south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Luke 13, 29. Oh, what a glorious train will be seen following the Redeemer in that day. So secondly regarding the privileges, the happiness and privileges of believers. As all the saints shall be collected into one body, so they shall be all brought or presented unto God faultless and without blemish. Again, Jude verse 24. A glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Ephesians five twenty-seven. For this is the general assembly of the spirits of just men that are made perfect, Hebrews 12, 23. All sin was perfectly separated from them when death had separated their souls and bodies. And thirdly, in this lies the privileges of believers, that as they shall be all brought together, and that in a state of absolute purity and perfection, so they shall be all brought to God. They shall see his face in the vision whereof is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. The objective blessedness of the saints consisteth in their fruition of God. Psalm 7225. 
To see God in His word and works is the happiness of the saints on earth. But to see Him face to face will be the fullness of their blessedness in heaven. 1 John 3, 2. This is that intuitive, transforming, and sanctifying vision of which the Scripture frequently speaks. Psalm 17, 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Revelation 7, 17. And fourthly, underneath this this section about the privileges that believers receive. To be brought into God must needs imply a state of perfect joy and highest delight. So speaks the apostle in Jude 14. Christ shall present or bring them to God with exceeding joy. And more fully, the joy of this day is expressed in Psalm 45, 15. With joy and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. It will be a day of universal joy when all the saints are brought home to God in a perfected state. For, and now we have underneath this fourth section, we're drilling down one one more level in, in the outline here. Number one, God the Father will rejoice when Christ brings home that precious number of His elect, whom He redeemed by His blood. He rejoiceth in them now, though imperfect, and under many distasteful corruptions and weaknesses. Zephaniah 3.17 How much more will He rejoice in them when Christ presents them without spot or wrinkle to Him? Ephesians 5.27 2. Jesus Christ will exceedingly rejoice. It will be the day of the gladness and satisfaction of His heart. For now, and not till now, He receives His mystical fullness. Colossians 1.24 And beholds all the blessed issues of His death, which cannot but give Him unspeakable contentment. Isaiah 53.11 He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. Number three. The day in which believers are brought home to God will be a day of unspeakable joy to the Holy Spirit of God Himself. For unto this all His sanctifying designs in this world had respect. To this day He sealed them. Towards this day He stirred up desires and groanings in their hearts that cannot be uttered. Ephesians 4.30 Romans 7.26 Thus the great and blessed persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, will rejoice in the bringing home of the elect to God. For as it is the greatest joy to a man to see the designs which his heart hath been long projecting and intently set upon by an orderly conduct at last brought to the happy issue he first aimed at, much more will it be so here the counsel in hand of each person being deeply concerned in this blessed design. And number four, the angels of God will rejoice at the bringing home of believers to Him. The spirits of just men made perfect will be united in one general assembly with an innumerable company of angels. Hebrews 12, 22. Great is the affection and love of angels to redeemed ones, 
they, rejo- they greatly rejoiced at the incarnation of Christ for them. Luke 2.13, they greatly delighted to pry into the mystery of their redemption. 1 Peter 1.12, they were marvelously delighted at their conversion, which was the day of their espousals to Christ, Luke 15.10. They have been tender and careful over them and very serviceable to them in this world, Hebrews 1.14, and therefore cannot but rejoice exceedingly to see them all brought home in safety to their father's house. And number five, and this, this will end this, the first major point. To conclude, Christ bringing home all believers unto God will be matter of unspeakable joy to themselves for whatever knowledge and acquaintance they had with God here, whatever sights of faith they had of heaven and the glory to come in this world, yet the sight of God and Christ the Redeemer will be an unspeakable surprise to them in that day. This will be the day of relieving all their wants, the day of satisfaction to all their desires, for now they are come where they would be, arrived at the very desires of their souls. And children, when he said, they are now come home where they would be, in the language there, he meant it's where they want to be. It's their desire. It's where they would want to, to reside. So that, that concludes that first major point that was what, what Christ bringing us to God imports, what it means. So to the second point, which is what influenced the death of Christ had upon this design of bringing us to God. Secondly, in the last place, let it be considered what influence the death of Christ had upon this design of bringing us to God, and you shall find it much every way. In two things, especially, the death of Christ hath the blessed casualty and influence in this matter. Namely, one, it effectually removes all obstacles to it. That's it is bringing us to God. It removes all those obstacles. And two, it purchaseth as a price their title to it, and that is bringing us to God. So now we'll have underneath only a couple of points underneath this second section, and then we will move on to some, um, some uses or deductions, as he calls it. So first... The death of Christ removes all obstacles out of the way of this mercy. Such were the bars hindering our access to God, as nothing but the death of Christ could remove, and thereby open a way for believers to come to God. The guilt of sin barred us from His gracious presence. Romans 1, 2, and 3. Hosea 14, 2. The filth of sin excluded us from God. Habakkuk 1.23, Hebrews 12.14. The enmity of our nature perfectly stopped up our way to God. Colossians 1.21, Romans 7.7. By reason hereof, fallen man hath no desire to come unto God. Job 21.14. The justice of God like a flaming sword, sword turning every way kept all men from access to God. 
And lastly, Satan, that malicious and armed adversary, lay as a lion in the way to God. 2 Peter 5, 8, Oh, with what strong bars were the gates of heaven shut against our souls. The way of God was chained up with such difficulties as none but Christ was able to remove. And he by death hath effectually removed them all. The way is now open. Even the new and living way consecrated for us by his blood. The death of Christ effectually removes the guilt of sin. 1 Peter 2 Verse 24, washes off the filth of sin, 1 John 5, 6, takes away the enmity of nature, Colossians 1, 20 and 21, satisfies all the demands of justice, Romans 3, 24, 3, 25 and 26, hath broken all the powers of Satan, Colossians 2, 15, Hebrews 2, 14, and consequently the way to God is effectually and fully open to believers by the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 10, 20. So secondly, the blood of Christ purchased for believers their their right and title to this privilege. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that is both the relation and inheritance of sons. There was value and worth enough in the precious blood of Christ, not only to pay all our debts to justice, but over and above the payments, the payment of our debts to purchase for us this invaluable privilege. We must put this unspeakable mercy of being brought to God, as my text puts it, upon the account and to the score of the death of Christ, no believer hath ever tasted the sweetness of such a mercy if Christ had not tasted the bitterness of death for him. The use of all you will have in the following deductions of truth. So before we move on to this deduction, I wanted to, I, I thought of a, an analogy regarding this, the obstacles being moved out of the way and then the title Think of standing before like a foreign country that you want to enter and the way is barred. The gates are closed. There is no one even there you can talk to. You can't get in. So first of all, the thing that has to happen is the gates have to be opened. But then you need your passport too. So you, you, must, have, you must have a title to enter in. You have to have something that you might be allowed to enter. So, and this is, this is what's telling us to think that Christ's death removed both the, the obstacles and we as his people have been given that title. We've been given that passport that we need to show that we are citizens of that heavenly city. So moving on to uses. And we have, I think, around seven or eight this is a, it's, a, it's a long section of the sermon, but it's a really good part. So he calls them deductions, so I'll, I, will, I will do so. Deduction number one. Great is the preciousness and worth of souls that the life of Christ should be given to redeem and recover them to God. As God laid out his thoughts and counsel from eternity 
upon them to project the way and method of their salvation. So the Lord Jesus, in pursuance of that blessed design, came from the bosom of the Father and split his invaluable, spilt his invaluable blood to bring them to God. No wise man expends vast sums to bring home trifling commodities. How cheap soever our souls are in our estimation, it is evident by this they are of precious esteem in the eyes of Christ. Deduction number two. Redeemed souls must expect no rest or satisfaction on this side heaven and the full enjoyment of God. The life of a believer in this world is a life of motion and expectation. They are now coming to God. 1 Peter 2, 22, verse 4. God, you see, is the center and rest of their souls. Hebrews 4, 9. As the rivers cannot rest till they pour themselves into the bosom of the sea, so neither can renewed souls find rest till they come into the bosom of God. There are four things which do and will break the rest and disturb the souls of believers in this world. Afflictions, temptations, corruptions, and absence from God. If the three former causes of disquietness were totally removed so that a believer were placed in such a condition upon earth where no affliction could disturb him, no temptation trouble him, no corruption defile or grieve him, yet his very absence from God must still keep him restless and unsatisfied. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6, whilst we, we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Deduction number three, what sweet and pleasant thoughts should all believers have of death. Now, I don't, I, I don't want you to think that, that we need to just rush to death, right? That is not what, what we are called to do. But we should not fear it. We should not fear death because if we're not here, then we are at home with the Lord. When they die, and never till they die, shall they be fully brought home to God. Death to the saints is the door by which they enter into the enjoyment of God. The dying Christian is almost at home, yet a few pangs and agonies more, and then he has come to God, in whose presence is the fullness of joy. I desire, saith Paul, to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Philippians 1.23 It should not affright us to be brought to death, the king of terrors, so long as it is the office of death to bring us to God. That dreaming opinion of the soul sleeping after death is as ungrounded as it is uncomfortable. The same day we loose from this shore, we shall be landed upon the blessed shore where we shall see God and enjoy God forever. So here he's refuting a doctrine that is, that is a false doctrine, and that's a, one of soul sleep. And and children, catechism, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory. So think about that. that that's, he's refuting that, and our catechism does the same thing. 
Oh, if the friends of dead believers did but understand where and with whom their souls are, whilst they are mourning over their bodies, certainly a few believing thoughts of this would quickly dry up their tears and fill the house of mourning with voices of praise and thanksgiving. Then number four, deduction number four. How comfortable and sweet should the converses and communication of Christians be one with another in this world? Christ is bringing them all to God through this veil of tears. They are now in the way to him, all bound for heaven, going home to God, their everlasting rest and glory. Every day, every hour, every duty brings them nearer and nearer to their journey's end. Romans 13, 11, now, saith the apostle, is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Oh, what manner of heavenly communications and ravishing discourses should believers have with each other as they walk by the way? Oh, what pleasant and delightful converse should they have with one another about the place and state whither Christ is bringing them and where they shall shortly be? What ravishing, transporting, transforming visions they shall have that day they are brought home to God. How surprisingly glorious to them the sight of Jesus Christ will be who died for them to bring them unto God. How should discourses as this shorten and sweeten their passage through this world, strengthen and encourage the dejected and feeble-minded and exceedingly honor and adorn their profession. Thus lived the believers of old, Hebrews 11, 9, and 10. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him with the sa- of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. But alas... Most Christians are either so entangled in the cares and troubles or so ensnared by the delights and pleasures which almost continually divert and take up their thoughts by the way that there is but little room for any discourses of Christ and heaven among many of them. But certainly, this would be as much your interest as your duty. When the apostle had entertained the Thessalonians with a lovely discourse of their meeting the Lord in the air and being ever with the Lord, he charges it upon them as their great duty to comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians four seventeen and 18. What a convicting deduction that is for us, brethren. Deduction number five. How unreasonable are the dejections of believers upon the account of those troubles which they meet with in this world. It is true. Afflictions of all kinds do attend believers in their way to God. Through many tribulations we must enter into that kingdom. But what then? Must we despond and droop under them as other men? Surely no. If afflictions be the way through which you must come to God... Then never be discouraged at affliction. Troubles and afflictions are of excellent use. Under the blessings of the Spirit, 
to further Christ's great design in bringing you to God. How often would you turn out of the way which leads to God if he did not hedge up your way with thorns? Hosea 2, 6. Doubtless when you come home to God, you shall find you have been much beholden, it may be a great deal more, to your troubles than to your comforts for bringing you thither. However, the sweetness of the end will infinitely more than recompense the sorrows and troubles of the way, nor are they worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in you. Romans 8, 18. You know, I, I, I thought this was another great deduction here. I'm going to comment for just a moment that those comforts are not what really help us along the way very much, is it? I mean, we can be thankful for those comforts that God sends us. And certainly that, that should be a, a cause for us to praise Him and thank Him when we are given comforts in this life. But brothers and sisters, I, I think those afflictions are those things that, that remind us how much we need Him, how much we are dependent on Him. And, and, and those, so, so let's make good use of the afflictions that, that God brings upon us. Let those be the things that drive us to Christ. Turn us from our sin. Deduction number six. How much are all believers obliged in point of interest to follow Jesus Christ whithersoever he goes? Thus are the saints described in Revelation 14 verse 4. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. If it be the design of Christ to bring us to God, then certainly it is our duty to follow Christ in all the paths of active and passive obedience through which He now leads us, as ever we expect to be brought home to God at last. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews 3, verse 14. If we have followed Him through many sufferings and troubles and shall turn away from Him at last, we lose all that we had wrought and suffered in religion and shall never reach home to God at last. The crown of life belongs only to them who are faithful to the death. Deduction number seven, and this is the final deduction. Let all that desire or expect to come, come to God hereafter, come to Christ by faith now. Brothers, there is no other way to the Father but by Christ. No other way to Christ but by faith. How vain, therefore, are the hopes and expectations of all unbelievers. Be assured of this great truth. Death shall bring you to God as an avenging judge if Christ do not bring you now to God as a reconciled father. Without holiness, no man shall see God. The door of hope is shut against all Christless persons. John fourteen six. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Oh, what a sweet voice cometh down from heaven to your souls this day, saying, As ever you expect or hope to come to God and enjoy the blessing that is here, 
Come into Christ. Obey His calls. Give up yourselves to His conduct and government, and you shall certainly be brought to God. As sure as you shall now be brought to Jesus Christ by spiritual union, so sure shall you be brought to God in full fruition. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ, the new and living way to the Father. And thus I have finished the motives drawn from the titles and benefits of Christ, serving to enforce and quicken the great gospel exhortation of coming to and effectually applying the Lord Jesus Christ in the way of faith. Oh, that the blessings of the Spirit might follow these calls and fix these considerations as nails in sure places. But seeing the great hindrance and obstruction to faith is the false opinion and persuasion of most unregenerate men that they are already in Christ. My next work, therefore, shall be, in a second use of conviction, to undeceive men in that matter, and that by showing them the undoubted certainty of these two things. First, that there is no coming ordinarily to Christ without the application of the law to our consciences in a way of effectual conviction. And secondly, nor by that neither without the teachings of God in the way of spiritual illumination. The first of these will be fully confirmed and opened in the following sermon. Now, brothers, that's the end of this sermon, and as you, as you just heard, he's making allusions to his next one. Now, I can't promise you that, that, will be, that, that you'll get to hear that one from this pulpit, but uh, it might be a really good idea to follow up that one if I have another opportunity to read one with the one that follows, just to complete that idea. It sounds like a, a really excellent sermon. So with that, brothers, let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank Thee for these good encouragements that we do have a home, that we, that we can be brought unto Thee by, that, that Christ, by the fact that Christ once suffered for our sins. And we thank Thee, Father, that, that Thou hast called us sons and daughters, that Thou hast adopted us unto Thyself. And we pray, Father, that, that we might hold these truths dear, that we might seek to serve Thee and Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, in each and every day. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.